So it's good to be, uh, good to be back here and uh, with people live. Um, I always have a strong connection with this place uh, from many, many years ago when Larry Rosenberg was mentoring me and uh, I lived in Cambridge. So it's always good to come back, and I've, I've done different types of teaching. I've, I've taught at university, and I teach at Phillips Exeter with young people uh, and intellectuals. So I really like, I just like the mix of people here, that, uh, so it's wonderful to connect. And um, before I get started, how many folks are new, kind of new to the practice? Okay. Okay, good. So I hope what I reflect on, and then much of this evening will be our, our, our hour and 15 minutes if you choose to stay that long, is going to be a practice discussion. Um, but for the new folks, as well as, as folks that have practiced for quite a while, um, the reflection, which I'll offer now on change and how to try to work skillfully with change, I think it, it doesn't matter how long you've been practicing. Uh, because uh, Ajahn Chah, who is a great Thai forest master, I had the good fortune of practicing with when I was ordained in Thailand for a while, um, he said that uh, that change is the great uh, ruler of the universe. So not male, not female, not God figure, <laughs> but that actually the natural laws of change are the most powerful force in the entire universe. And they are, they're actually trying to teach us, they're pointing us towards if we learn to look at them in, in, a, in a way that we traditionally don't, point us towards the possibility of great freedom. So he said that uh, they're, they're trying to teach us, but we don't want to listen. So that's true, and I mean, in, from my perspective, that's true and also not true. Uh, it's true as a practice piece, and we'll get into that. But is change a problem in itself? It just is, right? And a lot of poetry, uh, Buddhist and other poetry, a lot of when we appreciate nature is aligning ourselves to the miracle that is change. Watching waves crash on a beach, watching the seasons turn, to watching a baby be born and grow. That all of these, all the facets of the creation of life are actually expressions of change. That's not a problem, is it? Something we can align to, be philosophically aligned with, and in life enjoy. But of course, change isn't just, just one-way change. It's the change that is dissolution, that is uh, moves from birth through creation, through growth, decay, and death with everything. And we need this, we, and we understand this philosophically, we need the cycles, the full cycles of change for what to happen, for new life to be born, new creation to be born. And even the stuff, if we look at the natural world, the stuff of decomposition, of what happens after a plant dies, for example, there's, that is giving itself to the soil from which new life grows, and this, this cycle that has to continuously happen. So our job as humans to try to maximize our happiness in life is to work as skillfully as we can with change. And in, in one way, we just do that 
by trying to make enough money so that we, when it gets to the time when we no longer work, then we can retire. Right? We do it so that we take care of our bodies or to the best of our ability, hopefully, or at least we know the things that we can do to help to take care of nourishment for ourselves so that we can, we can be as, as strong and healthy and balanced for as long as we can. Right? And then we take medicines and we try to find good doctors and all the rest when there's that cycle where change is, is on its downward slope towards dissolution. So this is the kind of change that we can work with skillfully, or we can try to work with skillfully. We can use our, our human abilities. Uh, and I'll give a fun example from my, from my father. My father, and I'll, I'll get, get more into this later because there's another kind of change. <laughs> um, it's not so predictable. Uh, my father passed recently, and a couple, about 10 days ago, we had a, a memorial service for him. Um, and one of the people, uh, he was a history professor. I uh, went to graduate school here, and then uh, was a history professor at Dartmouth College. And uh, the secretary was giving, about 10 of us gave little talks, and uh, the secretary of the department at the time, who was very close with him, uh, asked him one time, he, he had a very s kind of set routine, he was aligning himself with change as he got older. And he would eat saltine crackers. Does anyone remember those? Who's had a saltine in your life? Okay. Uh, oh, good. Even the younger. Okay, good. They're still around. <laughs> we had them growing up. So uh, he would have saltines at, for lunch, and uh, he would have saltines and peanut butter. That was his daily routine. And then uh, she, she asked him how many, as it, it, it seemed over the years, she was with him maybe 20 years or so, that he started having, he didn't have as many saltines as he got a little older. And he said, well, what, I know that I'm slowing down, and uh, as I age, I'm not quite as active as I, as I was. So every year, every year, I'm having one less saltine with lunch. <laughs> and I guess he did that all the way through his, until he retired. So that is an example of aligning ourselves with our body change, right? Aligning ourselves with, with change. And he actually did, he actually did not lose too much weight, but he, he kind of was very proud of how his weight had stayed at a good level as he, because he had that, he had that kind of uh, ability to, to, to see what was coming and align himself. He did it with many things in his life, in, just in anticipation of change, that part of change. So there's another part of change that uh, Ajahn Chah speaks of very, very clearly. It's not just that change happens, but it's that uh, it's unpredictable. Or he used the term uh, not sure. So we don't know when change is going to happen. It's not in our control. And that's often the kind of change that causes a lot more suffering than aligning ourselves with the cycle of natural change, whether it be in the, in the world or in, our, in ourselves. And actually, my father was a good example of this. He, uh, we thought he had three or four good years left, and he, he went in the hospital for something very routine, and it, it all kind of went wrong, and he, he died a few weeks later. And it was, very, it was just a, an example of change that was unpredictable and he couldn't control. So... The world has, the world has a, its ways of change that we can't control. 
And Dharma is here to help us with those. And what one teaching that I think is very, very good and clear on this is the worldly winds. So the winds are always blowing, right? And they're not just blowing steady. They're blowing in different ways, different times, different conditions, different weather patterns. And so the worldly winds are uh, gain and loss. These are things of the world that just happen. They're happening all the time. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, success and failure, and fame and disrepute. Can you relate? All of these things are happening, and they're happening not always in the ways that we want them to. Right? So gain and loss. Look at the economy. We go through a wonderful period of growth in a macro sense, and then because of COVID and other factors there's, and war, there's tremendous loss constriction that happens on individual and societal levels that is very is, is causes a lot of suffering we all know the pleasure pain pain principle and we know that some things that were very pleasurable in our lives if we do them too much then they're no ple- they're not pleasurable anymore right it's good to watch a show if we you know there's wonderful entertainment possibilities but if we just watch for two days straight if we've been it's not good anymore is it No, I don't know. I don't know what your tolerance level is. (laughs) And the same thing goes for pain to pleasure. We can be in a really tough situation emotionally, physically, etc. In a relationship or something happens and then the conditions change. And then all of a sudden there's some relief. There's some, some, something changes. We all know success and failure. And we also all know, we also know that Success and failure get kind of codified inside ourselves and in the world in terms of what people think about us, right? What our reputation is and what others' reputation is. Fame and disrepute. And often we can't control these things, can we? One of the hardest emotions to work with. So actually, that's the outer level. That's, that's the world. The world is always producing change. And then... What happens on the inside? And now we're moving more into Dharma practice, not just the knowledge of of, of the world, but how do we work with it skillfully from the inside? So we have inner worldly winds, don't we? We blame ourselves and uh, perhaps we praise ourselves if we're doing well. I don't know how many people are more into the blame, self-blame than the (laughs) self-praise. But there's still vicissitudes. Right? There's still times when we're happy with something that we've done, when there's some sense of, of okay, accomplishment or stability or, or, or a sense of, okay, this was good. How many people have had a good reputation and then in others' eyes and then it wasn't so good anymore? And that's pretty hard to work with, especially, and the, these are things that we, as we explore more of the teachings, this is what our practice points us to try to work with skillfully, especially the inner worldly winds and the unpredictable nature of them. One of the hardest things to work with is if we haven't done anything wrong and we've been blamed for it. Or gossip or right, all of these energies that swirl around. And how, what do they cause in our hearts when we get caught in our 
What, what are the worldly winds on the inside? What are they based on? They're based on reacting to the outer winds. Right? Reacting to what's happening in the world that we can't control. It's unpredictable. So here's, we have some, that's kind of a downer. But actually it's, and this is the key of Dharma practice in its essence, the very reality, the very nature of how our inner, how we're inner, we're conditioned on the inside in relation to how the world is functioning, if we can start to align ourselves with these facts, then we can start to break apart a lot of the extra energy, a lot of the solidification that goes in terms of creating what's classically used as I, me, and mine, or I'm no good, or I'm better than, or I'm a failure, or I am a success, or I must always have pleasure, I can't handle pain, etc. So behind that is a sense of separation, isn't there? And there's often the, there's often the layer of the, the reflective mind that's kind of gone wrong a little bit, or it's not, it's not accurate, it's not skillful, it's not serving. But there's a momentum in the winds, that's why they're called winds, that's why they're, they're they, because they blow. And Dharma's purpose in one sense, if we're using this metaphor, is that we learn to see that the winds on the outside and on the insides are blowing within the atmosphere of space. They're blowing within a bigger, a bigger environment, a bigger field. And therefore, we can't necessarily control them, but we can understand what they, what they are. And we can start to create a sense of space and a sense of naturally letting go of clinging to any of the parts, right? any of the weather systems that are passing through. And what is this shift based on? What is, it, what is the path of practice? Well, the Buddha laid out a very simple, clear uh, kind of trajectory of how we can work to, you can say, uproot our reactive tendencies to creating constriction, creating that sense of separation through, well, what works for you? Actually, rather than just giving you the prescription, if your heart, how many people have done metta practice? Let's just make it really, has that, and how many people when you've done loving kindness or metta, compassion, uh, empathetic joy, equanimity, has that helped given your heart a little more space? Have you gotten a little, have you felt that there's a bigger sense around the specific constrictions that are in the middle of it? How many people, just raise your hand again. So actually, if I'm correct, everybody that raised your hand, which is probably more than half the people in the room, raised their hand for both, okay? So that's a core piece of, of working through intention and, and the foundation of Dharma practice is having that, that inner kindness both in our, in our, for ourselves and also traditionally, um, as is presented very much in Asia, where I spent better part of a decade practicing, generosity, appreciation, and the, act, the action of doing something that isn't just for oneself, for one's preservation, but for others in a way, whether it be just giving attention to a situation, to someone to really deeply listening, or whether it's actively uh, using a skill or if there's a monetary ability to support a situation bigger than ourselves. 
So it's said, and, and metta is an aspect of that. It's a generosity of the heart. Isn't that how it feels? It's like you're making an offering of goodwill. And then the energy, and what's more important in metta than the words, is the energy they hold, the intention. And this is, this is where the path is so very, it's something that we can work with and do. We can actually work with the qualities of heart and mind and action that come out of them through intention and through, through a kind of I, a, a change in attitude. So we have that power. And we have to practice is, very, is exhibiting that power in, in some ways. It is. It's doing that again and again. It's being mindful of, oh, this helps my heart. Oh, this helps the world. Okay, let me, let me, let me invest in this. Um, so that's a foundation piece. And another piece that, of, so this is attitude. This is working with attitude and beginning to move into meditation practice. Another thing that is very powerful in terms of working with change on a, on a reflective level, it has to turn into practice, but on a reflective level, um, there's a story of Ajahn Chah again who had a novice who was uh, taking care of, he didn't have, monks don't have, possess, like traditionally don't have possessions like we do. You're supposed to have like four possessions. You get like a, you get a robe, you get a bowl, you get a, like a something for rain, and uh, there's certain medicines that are allowed. So Ajahn Chah, who's this great Thai forest master, had a little hut that he was living in, and he had a teacup. I don't think it was technically his, but he, he loved it, and uh, it was it was his prized teacup. And one day a novice was in, you know, it's like it. It was in cleaning the floor, and accidentally he hit the teacup and broke it. And he was very worried that when Ajahn Chah came in, he would be very upset. Right? So Ajahn Chah came in, and uh, he saw the teacup broken, and the, the, the novice monk apologized and said, You don't seem very upset. And Ajahn Chah said, and Of course, it's a story, so I'm not using the precise language, just said, uh, I knew the cup was already broken. And to me, there's a very profound piece, a, a very profound reflection in this, which underlies a lot of the wisdom teachings of the Buddha. That the fact that we understand that change is going to happen, that there's limited time, that we, and that we can use our resources, our intention, our, our, our attention, that we can, it gives a sense of, this is precious. It puts a kind of, for me, it puts a responsibility on action, but from a place of love and care, of knowing this is, there's something kind of very, I don't know if I want to use the word sacred, but it feels that way. You honor things differently when you know they're not going to last forever, when you don't take them for granted. And then when change does come, if, that's a, if, that deep, if that reflection has gone through practice to be really deep, really deep in you, then the mind and the heart have aligned themselves so deeply with that which is, and then we'll move into this aspect of practice, that which is not bound by time. It's not only working with the inner and outer winds differently, but there actually is a fundamental sense when the mind and heart awaken that they're not limited by the stuff of the world. Does that lead to a detachment? 
you have to find out for yourself. We have to find out, in mo- is that some abstract, you know, like I'm out here and life's happening over here? Well, my experience is that when the mind and heart have aligned itself with the truer sense of refuge, of presence, present moment awareness, very simple, that isn't limited by any objects, and we'll get back to working skillfully with objects, like the breath or anything else, that when it's fundamentally has discovered this in itself, then its relationship to objects changed tremendously. Has anyone in your own experience recognized that when your mind and heart just feel like you're aligned at a deeper, more open level, that you start to, your relationships to other people, to objects, start to change? Just, just how many people have experienced that, in, at least in little bits? Great, that's the majority of the room. That's wonderful. That's, in a certain way, that's why we practice, right? So then you can enjoy the cup. And you're not worried about it breaking. That's the key. So that's where clinging comes in. That's where, and to use the kind of, it can be esoteric, but it's actually at the core of the Buddhist teachings, that sense of I, me, and mine. That is mine. These thoughts are mine. This body is mine. Conventionally, it's all true. But from the place of deep present moment awareness, everything is exactly the same. And when everything is the same, when awareness is bright and clean, then everything has value. Every moment has value. We drop into, Thich Nhat Hanh calls the miracle of mindfulness. We drop into a fundamentally different relationship with the stuff of our life, outer and inner. So we know the cup's already broken, but we're not worried about it breaking. And then when it breaks, we can actually feel, we might have memories, we might have, right? We can experience all normal human emotions. But there's part of us, so this is where it moves from theory to practice. We know. We know in a way who we're not. We're not all these attachments. We know that there's something, it's like uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's kind of the opposite. (laughs) It's not to get obliterated thought, but it's just the recognition that our beingness is of a fundamentally different nature. But not different in the sense of separation, different in the sense that it's not attached. And it's not creating through its thoughts, through its conditioning, not a fixed sense of, of self here. So it's much more, our relationship with the world can be much more uh, natural, right? And that's what we have to do when we start to look at change. We have to understand that change is nature. That's what it is. So then practice gives us the ability through attitude, through reflection, right? That's why, that's right view. Oh, it's already broken. Change happens. Okay, it's already broken. Let me have, there's a different relationship to it. That we move from the reflective aspect to the actual experience of starting to touch that timelessness or in, in, a, in, a, in a developmental way. We've created a ground of, of care, of kindness, inwardly and outwardly in a certain way. That helps our system relax. That's what we do in Sangha. Then we, can, then we can work more clearly with bringing our attention more deeply into the moment in a way that's nourishing. So how many people were watching the breath during this session when we did the, the meditation? Did anyone get a little bit of calm from that? Even a little, right? O- often our minds are kind of crazy. We think they're crazy, but we still know something's going on. <laughs> 
because we're just having enough care and attention to keep coming back, right? And coming back to the present and not trying to struggle or push or pull, but just coming back and coming back. And then the power of the present moment starts to work its magic when we're not, right? Investing our sense of I in our thoughts, in the future, in the past. So it's important to know there's nothing wrong with the worldly winds. There's nothing wrong with the mind that's, that's the mind's nature. But that we learn through calming, we get some space. We watch, we do walking meditation, right? We really sip our tea. We do it in an engaged way when we're really paying attention. Like right now, you can be practicing Dharma. You can be practicing attention to the words and, and in a way, attention to being in our own, our own bodies, our own awareness, fields of awareness. And then when our mind starts to come in and judge and think of this and that, we can see, oh, that's, that's something that, do I need to follow this or not right now? Right? So actually even listening to others and listening to a Dharma talk is a wonderful practice to bring your attention to something and to let, without shaming or blaming or pushing away, let everything else just come and go. And through that steadiness, and many of us know in our experience and in the world that when we are steadily engaged with our awareness and our attention in something, that itself brings satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, some of the people that I know that are the most actually successful, not maybe in terms of money or this or that, but some of them have been, but just success, successful in their lives, there's a quality of entering into fully the stuff of life. And that's when I, when I gave my little uh, reflection for my father, that's the stuff, I gave a little Buddhist slant. So <laughs> I, I, he had a lot, of, a lot of accomplishments in the world, but what I really felt that I loved about him was that he seemed to bring a care and attention into every part of his daily life. Whether it was mundane or, or just, just daily life tasks brought him a kind of joy that I found, like, like he would celebrate when they finished leftovers. It was like, no, it was, <laughs> I was it was kind of, uh, and the, the Dartmouth basketball coach who honored him said, uh, he, my dad was just showing him some little tiny thing he did in the, like it, with the earth or something, and the guy said, you know, God, I can't believe he's showing me this. He's like the smartest man I've ever met, and here we are digging in the dirt, and he's totally joyful. So that's the kind of, that's so to me that was that in, that level of intelligence has to do with the quality of connection and the quality of of balanced attention we bring into life and to me that and in mindfulness that is an intelligence there's intelligence in quality of attention okay so this we can take pauses we can do formal practice this this builds this and then that leads for the conditions which in, exist independently of of learning to calm and steady the mind, but it's harder to tap them for most of us when we don't have that, when we don't have that um, practice behind us, when we don't really put in the work of formal practice and paying attention in daily life. And that is the fact of the clear seeing that transforms our, really transforms our relationship to living. And that's the heart of Vipassana practice is that we see so deeply into experience we see change, but we're not making a change. We're actually moving. When the mind is fully present, it's not worried about change. You're not trying to see change. There's no, there's no, there's no leaning into the moment. There's just a, there's the sense of the mind, the heart, and experience meeting each other fully. 
and when the conditions are right, that sense of separation, I, me, and mine, that temporarily, or if you have bigger open, that, that dissolves. And I think it's just a normal human skill. I think we do it all the time. One of my teachers used to say, if we didn't do it at little moments throughout the day where we kind of abandon ourselves into something, that we'd all kind of go crazy because we'd have this filter. You know, when we're really upset and things are hard emotionally, we're caught in the, aren't we caught in those winds, those filters? We're caught. We're stuck in that middle ground, that bardo, <laughs> that, that, that sense of not fully being engaged with the freedom of awareness or, or our actual living. So, so the clear seeing is what frees us. And the real good news about practice, and I'll wind, begin to wind down here with the reflection, the really good news about practice is that our life, it's a cliche, but it's true. Our life is here to wake us up. It is, when we take the, when, when we align ourselves deeply in being present, there is no other place we could possibly wake up than the present moment. There's no, and this is a radical change in attitude. There's no other conditions, not going on a retreat, not some blissful experience. There's no other conditions other than these. When we're, when we're living from a kind of timeless awareness, just full mindfulness, okay, clear comprehension, then this is the only place we can wake up. And that's an invitation uh, as one of my favorite book titles, Thich Nhat Hanh has really good book titles. <laughs> Pieces Every Step, The Miracle of Mindfulness, etc. Is uh, no, uh, no Mud, No Lotus. And that's, it's not saying mud is something lower. Mud is the stuff of the decomposed world, right? It's the stuff that went underground. It's, and, it, and for us, it's not, it's all of our emotions. It's all the things that are actually living that aren't necessarily the flower that's not up here. And that when we, and we're not, we don't have to dig either because our life is as it is. Is there any mud in your life? <laughs> so it's just a, but what comes out of that connection to the actual stuff and throw out mud now okay just the stuff the immediacy of our life what comes out of that when we can align ourselves so that we're not thrown off when our mindfulness is balanced is the fact that something grows out of that clear seeing grows out of that the heart with change when difficulty comes and there's change does that open, in your own experience, does that open your heart? Does that make you a richer, fuller human being when you actually can embrace? It doesn't, it's not necessarily all pleasant, right? It's not the worldly wins. It doesn't all turn to pleasure. But loss can bring depth if we, if we, if we move ourselves with it and into it. And what is the depth? It's the depth of both the awareness that's free, but also it's our connection with each other because we're all in this human condition and it's our connection with other life as well, all life forms. And this, this, it becomes a virtuous cycle where clear seeing and connection brings energy to have further kindness and further respect for the environment and further respect for differences. Why? 
Because why? Because the, the sense of I, me, and mine blocks, it blocks and separates. That's, its, that's what it does. That's what it does. See. See if you're caught in your own agenda or you're we're fixated, what that does to the quality of moving forward in a creative way where there's new life that comes out of it. So that's, that's the lotus. So I think if we can, re- not as a cliche, but really take the time moment by moment to embrace this attitude, it's very, very liberating. And I'm gonna end with another story from my, from my or a couple of stories. Because there's an underlying feeling often that um, if we do practice right, we're not going to have any problems. I believe that. <laughs> I'm really deluded. <laughs> I still think if I do it right, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have problems. Or I'm not going to make problems out of things. Who believes that? Just do a little reflection. Do you think you believe there's some idealism that comes into your practice? I know it's interesting because I see it after practicing for a lot, for you know, three, four decades. It's, it's like, wow. <laughs> Conditioning is very strong in the mind and the heart. So there's a story of the, of the, the Buddha, um, a farmer coming to the Buddha. It's told in many different ways, but, and complaining and complaining about uh, all the things that are wrong, about uh, you know, his wife is not, being, is, 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 is not being that kind to him, and there's a drought, and his, uh, right? and there's, <laughs> his crops are failing, and his, his animals are upset, and they're acting out, and his son, you know, won't do his chores, and et cetera, et cetera. So it says there's 20 of them, and then, and he said, can you help me, Buddha? He said, sure, uh, but you have to tell me what's the 21st problem. Well, what's that? Well, your problem is you don't think you should have any problems. So if we understand the 21st problem, then it changes our relationship to all of the stuff of our life that isn't pleasant, that, that isn't, isn't what we want. And how do we turn it? Just the final, how do we turn it? It's always clear seeing right here. All the path is supportive of this. And it, it really means that, our, that whatever is arising right now, in the moment, this is our invitation. Right? This, is, this is our invitation for a lotus. This is our invitation for freedom, for transformation. So I want to end, and I actually couldn't print this out, so I've got a like, reader from my phone. And uh, this was from my, um, I was mentioning my father's memorial um, some, yeah, a while ago up in Hanover, or near Hanover, and uh, this was from an amateur historian who, uh, I knew him, he, he's, you know, I know him, and uh, he didn't have an easy life, but my, he, my father was very influential in his, in his life. He had a hard life. He still has it. challenges. And this, he wrote this to my mom. Um, Dear Elena, so there was, we were getting feedback for people sharing about their relationship to my father. This is easy, easy for me to write. Jerry had the biggest, that's my dad's name, the biggest positive impact on my life of anyone. He was not the uh, touchy-feely, false praise of most. He was precise, insightful, and entirely useful. 
The single most profound thing I ever heard came from Jerry's lips. This was back in the 1980s, and one of the times I was visiting with him at his Dartmouth office in Reed Hall. I was in a very uh, usual self-loathing funk. But this time I actually uttered something to the effect that I was, quote, no good, lazy, no nothing, not practical, unsuccessful, with false expectations, etc. His, re his response hit me like a bolt of lightning and reversed the downward trend of my life. So, that's all he said. So. <laughs> Do you get it? So the so is not, the so is not, you shouldn't have these feelings. You shouldn't be touched by the worldly winds. The so is simply, this is, oh, so. So you want, you expect that you should not have these problems? So. And, he had a, and the reason that it worked, and this is why community is so important, and having teachers and having friends that you can rely on, it's so important because he had a lot of trust in my father. He had a lot of trust. So when my father spoke, he was willing to actually take in what he said. And my father wasn't being, putting him down in any way. So, so that's how it is. So. And he said, and this is, some, to me, this is the miracle of practice. His response hit me like a bolt of lightning and reversed the downward trend of my life. How could being with things as they are reverse the downward trend? in our minds. That's our practice. And that's what we're here to discover. So let's have a moment of silence, please. And the dedication May the fruits of our practice truly be a benefit to the quality of our own life, of those in our lives, and in the interdependent web of life that we all inhabit to all beings everywhere. May we and all beings be safe, be happy, and be free. So thank you everyone. Thank you for coming. Thanks for hosting and uh, just gratitude for this wonderful place of uh, CIMC. It's great. It's a, it's a, when Larry, Larry Rosenberg and I uh, co-founded, uh, we're two of the three co-founders of the 
Insight Meditation Center in Newburyport, which is, we're, we're in transition right now. Um, the, the word that I came up with, because I've been revisioning, we're, we're going to move, we have to recreate uh, environment up there because the, we don't no, no longer have the building we had for the last 17 years. Um, so we're going to be, we're just going through a, a, a change. Uh, the community is going to re, re, speaking about mud and <laughs> lotus and change. <laughs> um, and one of, I was looking at the vision statement and, and it's, uh, it's, the purpose is to create a place of sanity in a world where it often appears that it's not that sane. So I really love that. I, I just feel like this is that place and every time that we, bring our we come together in practice and we bring it into ourselves and the, the, the beings that we touch in life that we're actually we're actually touching a little bit creating a little bit of a place of sanity and that's a pretty precious thing in this world isn't it right so thank you everybody thanks for being part of this this uh community of folks doing this okay have a good evening thank you